Hello and welcome to the Woodard Report podcast, where we empower business advisors to transform businesses. This podcast is your source for information and news you need for your accounting, bookkeeping, or tax practice. And it is proudly sponsored by Expensify, the expense management app that does it all for every business. We are also proudly sponsored by File, easy expense management via text messaging. For more information about both Expensify and File, please visit woodard.com slash podcast. And now your hosts, Joe Woodard and Heather Satterley. Well, Heather, we're back again. It's great to be here. And I understand you're going to be talking to us about failure. That's a fun topic. Yeah. Well, you know, failure is something that we all experience at some point uh, in our lives, usually at multiple points in our lives. And I think it's uh, a really great conversation to have because the way you approach failure really sets you up for success, right? So well, that's you what have I to unpack to... that a little bit. Um, yes, yeah, yes, we definitely have to unpack okay. that. All um, right. So, so uh, everybody, just to prepare you, we're talking about failure today. Are we excited? This is great. So, Heather, <laughs> Heather, I'm gonna just put you out there in the wind. Failure was your choice. Try not to fail. All right, tell us all about it. Go. Oh my gosh! Wow! Wow! Okay. Well, I mean, it's such one. an exciting, bright topic for everybody to be on their daily commute. Just, just making sure we set expectations. Right. All right, go ahead. Talk to us about right. our failures. Okay. Go all ahead. Right. Go. <laughs> well, I want to talk about failure because I think that fear of failure is something, Joe, that that is what holds us back from really achieving incredible success, right? So failure and the fear of failing is something that completely can paralyze us um, in anything we do. You know, um, just talking about an experience of mine, and I actually shared this at Scaling New Heights this past year, that I am deathly afraid of heights just terrified of heights. It's something I'm one of those people that when I get towards a, uh, a cliff or a, a window of a tall building, I'm the person that everything in me just pulls me back and I don't want to go near it. And so that's something that I've struggled with. And it's something that's really uncomfortable for me. So I had shared with, with our, our attendees at Scaling New Heights last year that uh, one way that I overcame that fear, which I'm not going to say the fear isn't completely gone, was I jumped off the stratosphere in Las Vegas. (laughs) So, um, and and that was something that was exhilarating, but you know, um, the thing that, that really feeling that would have been really bad, right? (laughs) But jumping off that, um, jumping off of that, the stratosphere, the biggest, the hardest part was actually taking that step, right? Actually doing it, actually taking the step. As soon as I was in the air and falling, it was, it was one of the most incredible moments of my life. Uh, but I transgress. I share that I uh, share that story um, with you just to kind of set up that failure is something that we all experience because without trying new things and allowing ourselves to fail, um, we can't ever grow. So if you think about it, everything that every time we try something new, it takes courage. Right. It takes the courage for us to step out of our comfort zone, walk into a place or experience something that we've never experienced before. And there's always that possibility of failure. So what I wanted to talk about today is is not, you know, we have to get over that idea of I'm never allowed to fail, that I'm never allowed to make a mistake. I'm never allowed to fail. And if I do fail, 
you know, it's going to either define who I am as a person, or it's going to be so catastrophic that I'm not going to be able to pick myself up and it's going to, you know, really ruin me as a person. And that's, that's really not, not, not the way it is. You know, um, we need to put ourselves in a mindset where not only do we, are we not afraid of failing, but we actually invite the opportunity to fail because that's where the biggest lessons are. And that's really what's going to allow us to grow as a person um, and as a professional. So talking about failure, the definitions of failure that we hear is lack of excess of success, right? Lack of success, failures, lack of success. Um, the omission or uh, the omission of expected or required action. So, you know, you failed to unload the dishwasher. And so when you go to wash the dishes, there was that failure. Now you're going to have to do that. Maybe you don't have time, right? So that's a very <laughs> minor example, but a real life one, nonetheless. Um, the action or state of not functioning. So something not working like, a, a you know, a, your engine failed, right? Um, a sudden cessation of power. So a failure of you have power over something and then all of a sudden you don't anymore. So um, the collapse of a business. And um, a person or thing that proves unsuccessful. So all these sound really awful. They sound really awful. But if you look at them each individually, the thing that is kind of over that is kind of over encompassing is that this is all temporary, right? It's all temporary. Each one of these failures doesn't mean, you know, that it's it's that's the end of the story. It means that there it, there's something that didn't work. And now we need to figure out how to overcome that. And overcoming that means pivoting, walking away from it and saying, this didn't work. And I'm going to take away learnings and try something new. It could mean, well, that didn't work um, for this particular, uh, you know, method. So I'm going to, you know, change the direction. So those are the things that really we want to be thinking about as we change our mindset on failure. So fear, the definition of fear is you know, it's a strong emotion that's caused by anticipation or the awareness of danger, right? So we're afraid of something because we think something is going to happen and our body and our mind prepares us for that unpleasant event that we think is coming. Um, and, you know, there's anxious alarm. So again, going back to that feeling of impending doom. So fear of failure typically leads to failure because you're unwilling or unable to move forth. And as you said, Joe, I think the last time that we were together, you said, you know, proceed afraid, right? Um, that you know you're afraid, but you've got to keep going anyway. So failure, um, there's a book by John Maxwell, Failing Forward, one of a great book, that really helped me because I've got to tell you, Joe, for a big part of my life, I was afraid to fail. I had that, that perfectionist, um, you know, mentality of like, if I'm going to do something, I have to do it better than, you know, I have to do it to the best of my ability and, and have it be this amazing thing. And failing forward, um, John Maxwell talks about how the failure, you know, looking at the failures in our life, that's actually how we prepare ourselves for greatness and for actually, you know, doing really amazing things. So what he talks about, where we're going to start is what failure is not. So failure is not avoidable. You're going to fail. So understanding that that it's not avoidable. Failure is 
<clears throat> he says not an event, but I disagree with that because I disagree with that because I think failure absolutely is an event and that you can overcome it, pivot from it, learn from it and take away. So I, that's a place where John and I disagree. Um, it's not objective. So a failure you say could be objective, but a true failure isn't. It didn't work. It's not what the expected outcome is. It's not an objective thing. It's not the enemy. Uh, it's not irreversible. So you can fail and then turn it around. And it's not final is the most important thing. So failure is not final. And there's a very famous quote about that. So failure can be a incredible, powerful catalyst in your life. So, you know, a lot of times we hear really empowering stories about people that say, I had to hit rock bottom before I could reach my full potential. And that is something that is very true because when you get to the point where you feel almost hopeless, right? Or you are at that point where you're like, I have really made a mistake. You have two choices. Your choice is to go crawl into a hole and wait there and nothing happens and nobody wants to do that. Or you have to pull yourself up, look at what happened and then find a plan to overcome it, which is really what, um, you know, what, what we need to be thinking about as we move forward um, to make change in our lives and, and in our practices. So failure drives innovation. That's what it's all about. When you're innovating, you know, uh, typically you're trying to find the best path, the best product, the, you know, the uh, something that's going to be, um, you know, that's going to lead to success. And an example of that is WD-40, right? So WD-40 is WD-40 because it was the 40th rendition of that particular product. So Formula 409 wasn't the area code, right? It was batch 409, right? So when you think about it that way, WD-40, they failed 39 times and they kept going. And they finally came up with a product that we use all the time and has really changed, you know, uh, has solved a big problem. Um, Windows 8 <laughs> failed harder. Windows 8.1, Windows 10, right? So we have you can see where we see we have things that don't work, but then we keep going and it ends up, you know, pushing us to something that's really fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about Maxwell's seven abilities needed to fail forward. So um, the first thing that we need to think about is this is all mindset. So this is your mindset on how you approach, approach failure and you approach things within your life and within your practice. So your seven abilities needed to fail forward is not being realistic with your own deadlines. So, and this is something that I do. And Joe, you and I have talked about Superman syndrome, right? Where you're like, I can do it all. I'm going to do it all. But not being realistic with our own deadlines in our life, um, that is one way that sets ourselves up for failure. So giving yourself that time and making sure that you're being really realistic uh, about what it is that you're going to have to do um, and, you know, making sure that you are you know, that you are not setting yourself up for um, the unattainable, right? Or the impossible. Um, not communicating effectively. So not telling people where you are, not 
keeping people within the loop. I mean, this is something that in my own practice was a hard lesson to learn. And I think that as practitioners, we sometimes get into that feeling of, I just, I just need to push through it and get it done. Right. Um, so a client needs a deliverable from us and we're working on it and we get stuck. Right. And maybe we don't communicate that to the client because we believe that we're just right around the corner, another five minutes, another 10 minutes. And what ends up happening is we miss that deadline. We're not communicating that there's an issue and, you know, um, we end up in a, in a situation that's, you know, that's not, not ideal. Um, giving away our, our intellectual, you know, brilliance for free. That's a way that we fail. So, um, uh, second guessing ourselves. So when we're going through and we're second guessing what we're doing, um, and not taking ownership of an engagement, right? So one of the things that sometimes we'll do is we, we're not super truthful with ourselves, right? Um, we kind of gloss it over because the pain or the pain of, of the reality is a little too much for us to take. Um, so, you know, second guessing ourselves when your gut is telling you need to pivot, it's probably time to listen to that and really look at it and give it the, you know, the, the, uh, the attention it deserves. Not addressing a pattern of mistakes. So enablement, right? So when you're in a situation with a client, you've got a non-ideal client that keeps doing the same things. Um, you know, we need to make sure that we're addressing patterns and looking for patterns and discussing patterns that we see both in ourselves, in our team, and with our clients so that we can take actions and changing it um, and make changes. Um, making assumptions. So what do they say about assumptions, <laughs> right? Um, making assumptions is something that um, I also really struggled with in, in my career early on was trying to just power through to get through and making assumptions about things. Those are things that will really come back to bite you. Um, and then expectations not aligned in an engagement letter. So failure to define scope, right? So those are really important things that we, we need to, you know, learn from. Um, so the 10, I'm going to go through a few things that I think that we need to really do to change our mindset on failure, uh, so that we can have that courage to proceed afraid. So number one is reject rejection. So when we are rejected by someone, by some organization, the first thing that happens is you get that pang in your, in your chest. You get that little hurt. And the way around that is to not take it personally. So especially in business, it's business and it's not personal. There's a lot of opportunities out there and you have to just say, well, this wasn't for me and you have to move beyond it. Maintain your confidence. Don't let it beat you down, right? Each thing that we do is part of who we are. It's not who we are. And so we need to you know, keep that in perspective. And then take responsibility where it's due. You know, it's, it is, it, you know, there's a lot to be said for taking the time to reflect on, on things and, and really being honest with yourself um, and taking ownership of, of things that, you know, don't go the way that you expect them to go. Uh, number two, see failure as temporary. Understand that failure is not final. Uh, number three, view your failures as isolated incidents. 
When something happens and it fails, it's an isolated incident. Don't connect the dots to things that are not related to it because that's where you end up going into this place that's really dark and really hard to get out of. So look at it as an isolated incident. Look at it for what it is and and, and move, uh, move on from that. Number four, keep your expectations realistic. Number five, focus on your strengths. So focusing on your strengths then, rather than your weaknesses and really honing in on what are you great at and making sure that that is where you are, that you are working in your zone of genius and that you're surrounding people that will help to, um, you know, help you to round out uh, the places where you're maybe not as strong. So once you do that, that is how you can change your mindset to really set you up to not be afraid of failure, but to actually understand that failure is part of the growth process, that it is going to happen, and that by avoiding it, you're actually holding yourself back from your full potential. So that's what I had to say to Joe about failure today. All right. Well, I have been actively taking notes and I've got lots of thoughts. So my favorite thing you said, Heather, and I'm going to put it into my own words of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And so, but fear of failure is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It creates the very failure that it fears. So, so that, that was my biggest takeaway. Um, and if you don't, if you can't absorb anything else as you're driving other than that truth, which I've just reinforced from Heather here, get that truth. So much of our failure is self-manufactured in our lives. Um, but I want to add a couple of thoughts because I've done a lot of, of, of analysis of my own fears. I've done a lot of reading. I'm no psychiatrist, but I've often thought that maybe I need to become one just to tackle this beast, right? Uh, because fear is the greatest inhibitor to achieving your best self. And so what I've, what I've found in my journeys from my lay perspective is that there are the following universal human fears. We fear poverty. And I don't mean like anti-greed. I mean, poverty, like we can't meet Maslow's basic hierarchy of needs, right? So we fear poverty. We fear obscurity. We want to believe that our lives, you know, that people in a, around us notice us. And that's that's tribal. It goes all the way back. Uh, it's it's ingrained, ingrained into our DNA that we must be of the tribe, meaningful for the tribe, right? So we so obscurity would literally mean death, right? So would isolation, exilement, death. So that's ingrained into our DNA, and that's why we instinctively fear it. A lot of fear is about instinctive behaviors, not environmental behaviors, and uh, it's it's something we inherit in our DNA uh, from our ancestors because our ancestors had these fears, and that's why they survived, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it, it's it, it, it's just genetics. So we fear poverty, we fear, fear obscurity, we fear powerlessness, we, we fear isolation, we fear irrelevance is the fears that I have documented that are common to me and I've seen common be manifested in others. We, we generally fear what's not known and predictable, which you kind of addressed, right? Um, and and we mix, when you mix the fear of what is not known and not predictable with the dread of what is not fun, <laughs> You have the recipe for procrastination. All right. Oh, so, 100%. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, so that's, that's some of my thoughts. I do want to say that I disagree with Maxwell on the giving of the intellectual property. I believe it's just the opposite. I think the more you give away of your knowledge, um, the more successful you are, not to the point where you are, you know, not providing for yourself, 
but I do think that being, you know, that, that giving away the knowledge, there's both a universal give back, uh, however you want to you know, define that energy. But I also believe that it, it parlays uh, a forward motion where it builds relationships, it builds respect, it creates opportunities. And there's an irony here that as John Maxwell's writing it, he's actually giving away the intellectual property, so to speak. You know, he would say it's copyrighted in a book. But once you reference the book, like we're doing in this podcast, it becomes the domain of humanity. So ironically, he's doing the very thing he's telling us not to do. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to disagree with him. And I respect John Maxwell greatly. So like when you said you disagreed with him, I saw a little bit of a, it kind of got stuck in your throat. We respect the man. Oh, we can disagree absolutely. with him. We can disagree uh, oh, with absolutely. him. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. right. So, um, so then whenever you were talking about this fear of rejection, um, it reminded me that scaling before last, scaling 2021 or 2022, excuse me, we were in, uh, we had a speaker named Xia Zhang. Uh, who wrote the book uh, called Rejection Proof. Uh, now, there'll be a link yeah. on our website where you can get to that, but just Google Rejection Proof. Don't worry about spelling Zha Zhang. Just book Rejection Proof. You'll find him. Um, and what he says in the book is you, you need to actually manufacture rejection by like going up to a stranger and asking for $100 just to get them to say no. It, because it like a vaccine, it, it builds up immunities to rejection where where it really matters. Okay. So those were my thoughts. Yeah. I, I love that. It's like letting it that, that term, letting it roll down your back. And yeah. it does that can paralyze you. And you know, what you were saying about the psychology of it, um, the psychology of fear, uh, you know, is there's also a physiological response to fear. So it's not just in our heads, it's also in our chemical makeup. So when I was talking about the butterflies in the stomach or the clenching and there's an adrenaline release, which is the fight or flight, and that is driving you, and that's a very real chemical thing. So part of it is learning to teach your body how to work through that, and there's breathing exercises you can do. There's, you know, you need to find the things that work for you that help to lower your blood pressure, that help you to, you know, relay that tension that fills your body physiologically when you're faced with a fear like that. And those, those types of techniques, um, you know, are, have been pivotal. They've been incredibly helpful to me, um, yep. to learn. So and then yeah. one other thing, cause I know we're long on this topic, but this is such an sure. important topic. Um, this is though I'm, I'm making it long, not you. So, but, but there's one last comment cause you mentioned about fear and you mentioned adrenaline. There's an inverse of that. There's not just the identifying that your body's responding that way and, and adapting to it. So you can level yourself out. There's an addiction to it that right. overcomes fear, meaning that we can use the adrenaline of the last minute panic that's created by the procrastination to get the job done when otherwise we don't have the courage to proceed afraid. So we use the adrenaline to proceed afraid. And that then validates that we don't have to be proactive and it even tells us a lie or allows us to tell ourselves a lie that we do better when we're under pressure. We don't actually do better when we're under pressure. We are just more energized when we're under pressure. It's like, a, it's like, a, it's like taking uh, Adderall or Ritalin. Um, it, it, there's a neurochemical reaction that gives us a, uh, an ability to accomplish the task. And we equate that with 
that's what we need to do. That's our best self. No, it's our medic. It's our self-medicated self is what that is. So it allows us to focus. It allows us to focus. It's kind of, you know, when you have that fight or flight, you know, you're everything in you as a human wants you to get away from that. And so if you can channel that towards, I'm going to solve the problem rather than run away from it, right? Fight or flight. Exactly. But but to your point, the point you're making is very solid. You do that way before the deadline. Yes. Right. (laughs) So that exactly. Rather than letting procrastination manufacture an acute dose of adrenaline right before the deadline to get the job done and then pat yourself on the back because you work best under pressure. So, yes, do both. Identify it to be proactive. Yeah. Okay. that's great. We could talk about that more, but let's move on. And okay. to our TV and movie quote segments, one of my favorites. Um, and um, this is a movie that I did not watch recently, um, but I, I do. I did watch, you know, all of the Hannibal Lecter stuff. I think until they started trying to just outdo themselves with, <laughs> with Macabre, um, back when it was actually psychological intrigue, and then I stopped at some point when it became grotesque or more grotesque. But the point is, in the in the movie Hannibal Lecter, uh, Hannibal Lecter actually has a quote, but he it's not original to him. He's quoting uh, a line from All the Pretty Horses, a book by Cormac McCarthy. But since it happened in the movie, it counts. And he said, scars have the strange power to remind us that the past is real. So I thought this was an appropriate quote because it can connect to what you were talking about, Heather, that mm-hmm. when you have scars... It's not a reminder that you're a failure as a person. It's a reminder of what that failure from the past taught you. Right. Right. So as I am saying that, I'm rubbing this scar on my hand that I've had since I was eight. Um, I will live with it for all of my life. And it's, it's, it's like a Frankenstein level scar. I mean, it's a big, big thing. Um, and... Uh, it, it even has a coarse nature to it. It's like if you're rubbing a football or the threads of a football. Um, and it was because I was, I was holding, I was running with a bottle of Coke and fell and the Coke bottle broke right into my hand. Ouch. So, yeah. Um, so the it, it, hospital stitches later, the point is never have I ever run with anything glass in my hand. Right. So, so the scar is a constant reminder of the lesson that we've learned. Mm-hmm. And that was an easy childhood lesson. They're much more complex lessons and they're figurative, figurative scars in, in the adult experience. But the point is there, right? So I love that quote from Hannibal Lecter. Not that I think Hannibal Lecter's a role model. I just love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that particular quote from Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> okay. uh, well, my, my, my quote is from The Morning Show. I've been watching uh, season three lately, but my quote is actually from season one. <clears throat> so The Morning Show, um, it's got Jennifer Aniston, which is my husband's um, favorite actress. And it's got Reese Witherspoon, a great cast, um, but it's good. And so the, my quote is from Alex Levy, uh, who is one of the co-hosts of The Morning Show. And um, she says, in leadership, decisions have to be made. You can't just have empathy for everybody and do nothing. Mm. And I love that quote because it's not enough to empathize and understand. You have to have the courage to actually take action. So if we walk walk through our life, just, 
you know, being empathetic to everyone, you know, that that's, you know, that's nice that you're empathetic, but if you're not taking a stand and taking action, um, you know, to, 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 to help in the ways that you can, then. Absolutely. Well, and that's why, you know, I don't get to use my Greek degree very often, but, but that's why the Greeks are very wise to have four words for love, not one. Um, right. Because ours is sorely, uh, inadequate. Uh, I love a cup of coffee. I love my wife, same word, but, right. but their word their the Greek word that, that, uh, that goes back to antiquity or Aristophanes, Plato, um, is, is the word agape. And it, it, it's a love that you cannot do as a verb without acting. Um, and we, we miss that. We don't have that word. If we had that word, it would help. Right. Um, yeah. So, but that's the very point you're making is it's, it's a love in action. It is a love in action. And I mean, empathy can be paralyzing. Yes. So, and, and I find that um, I, you know, I, I find that in my own life that, you know, sometimes I feel so strongly, you know, my, the empathy is so strong that it's like, you're, you don't know what to do, but you've got to do something. And yes. so again, it comes back to courage and, which leads us back to fear or failure. Am I going to let this person down? So it's, you got to do something. You got to do something. Yes, exactly. And you have to do something. You can't do everything, but you have to do something, right? And find out what your particular role is to play in that cause. Because if you try to absorb the whole cause, then you paralyze yourself again. So it's all, yes, it's all a very tough navigation, isn't it? We're Um, very philosophical today, Joe. Yeah, we are, but that's that's okay. Because I mean, when you, (laughs) Well, you bring up a topic like fear, it's, we're going right. to get psychological really fast, right? All right. So more on psychology. Uh, we're ready now for the book segment. Um, and the book that I'm featuring now is from sort of like a What Joe Read in the Past series, because I don't want to just cover what I'm reading now. That would be to omit the past. So I read a book several years ago called Positive Intelligence that had a profound impact on my life. It changed the way that I view human relationships the way I lead my company, the way that I am a husband, the way I am a father. If you've not read Positive Intelligence, um, it's by, and I may butcher his name, but Shirzad Shamin, but however I may mispronounce the name, um, the book is absolutely phenomenal. Just book, Positive Intelligence book. There are even some free tests you can take online. One of those that you can take online that's that I want to focus on here from the book is this concept of a relationship saboteur. And the relationship saboteur is a better framework for what is in psychology called a defense mechanism. But everybody has an instinctive um, desire and need to protect themselves. Makes perfect sense. So as we're protecting ourselves, and we're doing that psychologically and emotionally and physically in every other way. This is different than the fight and flight. This is more of a pervasive bubble of protection we place around ourselves anytime we're interacting with another living creature and humans more so because there's the psychological pieces. We, we have to protect, we have to use defensive mechanisms to protect ourselves. Well, Shamin makes a very good point that if you are defending yourself, you are also sabotaging the relationship with the person, either for good or bad. If they're an attacker, that's a good sabotage. If you if they are an ally or they otherwise are a net positive role for you, it's a bad outcome. 
every time we defend, we sab- we, 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 we sabotage. So there is in the book, detailed out in positive intelligence, numerous saboteurs, that, some of which are not universal, some of which, one of which is. So there's one that everybody in humanity has. And we'll talk about that one in just a minute. But the ones that you have to figure out if you have or not are, are you sabotaging human relationships, aka defending yourself from perceived or actual relationship harm? Are you doing that by avoiding? Are you doing it by trying to control the other person? Are you doing it by being a hyper achiever? I know that seems like a weird one, but if I'm just so amazing, nobody can ever find fault for me. It's a defensive move. Um, are you being hyper rational? They may attack me, but I'm not going to feel it. I'm going to go all Spock on them, right? I, I don't feel your hurt. Um, are hyper vigilant? I'm just going to avoid it before it ever happens. I'm going to get out of the way before somebody can hurt me. Um, I'm, I'm going to. I'm a pleaser. I'm going to make people like me so much they wouldn't dare ever hurt me. Um, all of these are defense mechanisms and all of them sabotage relationships. Three more are restless, uh, meaning that I may be experiencing hurt, but I'm going to hide my my pain under busyness. Um, stickler. So I'm going to be so perfect that people, so it's either overachiever, which is outcomes, or stickler, which is perfectionism, two sides of the same coin, but they both protect you from criticism in theory. And then the victim. So I'm not going to try to avoid the hurt. I'm just going to make you feel so, so bad for hurting me that you'll never do it again. All right. So all of those are are common to the human condition. Some of those are more prevalent in the way we act with others. But every single person, Heather, on planet Earth has one relationship saboteur. It's universal, it's systemic, and it's ingrained into the human condition. And that is the judge. We use judging others to defend ourselves, right? And if you've ever had the inclination when somebody is confronting you to think about um, for your mind to immediately go to their failures and how they're imperfect and how dare they and who do they think they are. And we turn all that emphasis on them because we are instinctively defending ourselves using the judge to do so. So there are three things that we instinctively judge. And there's even a test in the book where you can find out which one you lean most toward. It is, do you go, is your go-to to judge others? Is your go-to to judge yourself? Is your go-to to judge your circumstances? And, and it's a minority of the human condition that instinctively judges the circumstance as opposed to judging themselves or others. And if we can, re, if we can redirect our universal judge to judging a circumstance instead of a person, a group of people, or ourselves, then we will get a truer perspective. But that's not where you stop. You can ultimately inoculate the judge by turning the judge into an evaluator. So instead of judging others or judging myself, I evaluate the circumstances that were involved in it. And from that objective clinical perspective and evaluation of the circumstances, I will have the context for any learnings for myself, coachable moments for others. So read the book, Positive Intelligence. It will change your life. Well, I'm definitely going to read it because I have not read it. And I, I feel like everybody can read it because I feel like I have definitely all of, I've, I've experienced all of those in my life. So I, that's fascinating. Definitely. Can I make a comment on that? 
even though sure. we have the go-tos that are more natural to us, mm-hmm. we will use whatever tool is available to defend ourselves. All right. So, so if, if somebody breaks into my house and I have a gun, I'm going to go to the gun first. Can't get to the gun. I'm going to go find a kitchen knife. Can't get to the kitchen knife. I'm going to find a bat. Can't find the bat. I'm going to find uh, a golf club. I'm going to keep finding all the way down to the thing that may be the least effective, all the way down to this really big oversized coffee mug. I'll hit them with that. The point is, um, I'm going to find a weapon to defend myself and my family. It's just what's my most powerful go-to weapon. So that you raise a good point. At some point in all of our lives, we've all done at least one of these. Right. So who is the superpower saboteur in your... Yeah. Yeah. And mine, by the way, is the pleaser. I'll just go ahead and be transparent here. In addition to the judge, which everybody has, I (laughs) use pleasing... Yeah. To, you know, complete with a little bit of a Southern accent, throw in a dose of humility and boom, all of a sudden people like you so much they don't want to hurt you. And by the way, don't think you're being manipulated if you think I'm a kind person because I genuinely am. I like people and I'm I love I'm kind. Uh, but but all that's genuine. I'm just telling you that since I love people and since I find kindness to be an easy path for me it leads me to also use pleasing to defend myself. Somebody attacks me. I'm just going to get nicer. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I think, I think definitely I, I, I have some of that. Um, I think the hyper achiever is probably where I would imagine that I would go is that I, I'm, you know, as I said before, I have to struggle with the perfectionism, you know, like the, the good enough thing for me is, is, a, is a challenge. So I'm guessing that's where I am. But I also know that I've been the victim before. So sorry to everybody who I was the victim to. Um, but I've done pretty well getting away from that. So yeah. I've been working All right, on So that. we've been psychologists today, lay psychologists today. We've revealed a lot about ourselves. <laughs> All right. So let's lighten it up a little bit with our okay. favorite tweets of the week. Uh, okay. Which one's yours? So mine is from Ashley, the CPA, who, by the way, if you don't follow her on Twitter, she is awesome. Um, just awesome stuff, awesome content. She's funny. She's, yeah, yeah, love her. Um, so she said, some of these posts about AI versus humans makes me feel folks think we're in a potato sack race at a summer picnic. Y'all, we're in a wheelbarrow race and I'm going to have, and I'm going to have a robot pushing me. And then she also qualifies that by saying, based on ChatGPT's current ability to discern right from left, that may not be a good analogy. <laughs> but it's going to get smarter. And it is actually ultimately where we're going to be. And no, it is. So, you know, I, and, and honestly, I mean, where my takeaway on this and I, you know, Heather's takeaway is technology, you know, can't be viewed as a hindrance. You can't look at technology. That's where we're going. You need to, it's a tool. You need to know it exists. So you need to be informed that it's out there. You need to understand its potential with an open mind and then figure out how you're going to employ it or how others are going to employ it if you want to stay competitive. So um, otherwise, I think what she's saying is you're going to get run over or be left out of the race completely. Absolutely. Yep. That, That is changing, right? That cheese is moving. And mm-hmm. so if we'll see both as uh, adapt and, and, right. and apply, absolutely. And, and make a decision. I mean, it, it, if you look at it, it's just, you need to be aware of it. You need to understand it. You can't, as you said, the judge, right? You can't make that snap judgment based on what you're feeling. You've got to understand it to make an informed decision uh, because mm-hmm. we are moving into, you know, we're not moving in, we're smack in the middle of stuff that we, where we've never been before. And we absolutely, just and it's only going to become open. more of a, moment of singularity 
when the quantum computing becomes ubiquitous. And that'll kind of take us back to an episode we did uh, a couple episodes back, if right. you want to catch that one, um, with Randy Johnston, where we broke down the book Quantum Supremacy. So you start mixing this AI with the quantum supremacy, and you, you're going to get a revolutionary you, life, you, planet yeah. transforming technological singularity. And we um, have at Scaling New Heights in June, Joe, we have uh, Michio Kaku coming, who's going to be talking about quantum physics. He actually and, wrote the book Quantum Supremacy. He yeah. did. He yeah. did. And then we also have a, we have a breakout session, oh, which you don't know about yet, but we have a breakout <laughs> session on, on practical applica- applications of quantum. So okay, um, great. Awesome. Yeah. So it's going to be pretty, it's going to be amazing. All really right. Amazing. All right. So my, my social post of the week, uh, also on X, formerly known as Twitter, is uh, from Max Stevens, who is uh, the very good friend and mentor of Inky Johnson, who's spoken at a couple of Scaling New Heights conferences. Um, and at first, you know, I, whenever Matt quoted this, I was like, okay, now I've got to go watch the video because I don't understand it. You can't understand it outside of the context of the video. But when talent meets talent, talent is no longer enough. And what, what Inky is saying here as he's speaking to what looks like the University of Tennessee football team, it looks like he's in their, their meeting space, um, but at least one of their athletic teams, he is, he, what he's saying is, the opponent is likely just as talented as you. So you can't beat them on talent. The only thing you can beat your opponent on is teamwork. You know, together you must be greater than the sum of the parts. You must out-team them when you can't out-talent them. However, I have my own application of that truth, and I'm going to make it for accountants and bookkeepers. When, when talent meets talent, talent is no longer enough. And the way I'm going to apply that to you is when I'm highly respected and highly proficient as a tax or accounting professional, so is everybody else. Not everybody else, but so are a lot of other people. And if you want to have competitive advantage, if you want to have practice differentiation, because I ask accountants that all the time, what makes you different? What makes you, what gives you competitive advantage? What's your unique value proposition? And I'm telling you on their list almost every time is, I am a highly proficient accountant. That's not an answer to that question. That's table stakes. That's like saying, I know how to throw the football well, right? So when your talent matches the talent of a big, big slice of your industry, talent is no longer enough. What are you going to do beyond the talent? And I think, A lot of what we talk about here and being a a fearless person or at least a courageous person, we should say, but also, um, you know, what you just mentioned, you know, be on the cutting edge with the adoption of technology and with the innovation around it, that, that will differentiate you. Make, make the bots your team to put it in Inky's terms and And then be greater than the sum of your parts. And, and don't become complacent. I think that's the, that, that is the. The fatal, <laughs> I don't know, the fatal flaw of it. As we just said, failure is not permanent. But um, yeah, definitely don't don't let complacency get the better of you. Well, we always wrap up, since this is the Woodard Report podcast, with your favorite Woodard Report article uh, of the week. So what is that, Heather? So um, our friends over at Katana actually uh, published an article, Best Practices When Cleaning Up QuickBooks Online, a checklist. So they provided a checklist to our readers on what 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 is the secret sauce when you're doing a QuickBooks cleanup. So um, I thought that was awesome. And you should check it out. 
We're good. We love checklists, don't we? It's we great. do. We do. All right. Well, we are done for today, and I'm sure that we have a lot to read and a lot of tweets to work our way through to get ready for next time, but I will see you then. See you next time, Joe. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit woodard.com slash podcast.